Selma, good to see you. I'm doing good. Thank you. Ready? All right. Well, welcome to our Bible study tonight. We're going to be in John chapter 11. I don't have any slides. Uh, we're going to be uh, talking about the whole night, the, the, the situation with Lazarus, uh, the death of Lazarus and the raising of Lazarus. And I, I would have only used one slide anyway. So I just felt we'll just, we'll just have a good old-fashioned Bible study tonight. John chapter 11, verse 1. Now a certain man was sick, named Lazarus. Now, we've already been introduced to this family, Mary and her sister Martha, in a previous text where, of course, Martha was working very diligently, which was not the problem. The issue was she placed her, her priorities, misplaced her priorities, by thinking Christ God appreciated work more than he appreciated connection. That, that was the real issue with Martha. Never belittle a hard worker, right? It's the hard workers that, sh- that move the world. It's the hard workers that, that create the jobs and that provide us opportunities uh, that we wouldn't have without these hard workers in our life, in our company. So don't make fun of them. Don't belittle them. You'll lose them. The, the issue is when hard workers forget what really matters, relationships. That's what matters. In fact, I was talking with the students today in my high school Bible class, and uh, we were looking at a passage of Scripture where there was a crowd of people who wanted to see Christ. This is in the book of Luke, and and these people were pressing onto each other. The Bible says insomuch that they were like stomping on each other, like kind of only running over each other. And I said, you know, the problem is they all had the right motive. They wanted to be with Christ. Uh, They wanted to see Christ, hear Christ, be in his presence, but they were losing sight of the fact that they were having to run over each other to get to Christ. And so they were hurting other people to find healing themselves. And I said, that's a problem. And by the way, it's a problem in a lot of churches today. A lot of churches, people come to church and it's about me. Boy, do I need Jesus today. And I want to worship today. I need the more of the Holy Spirit. But when you come to a worship service, Thinking about all the things you need, you're going to lose sight of the other people around you and and sometimes walk over them and through them to get to Christ and cause harm. Let us not forget the need for connections. We need connections. People need connections. Martha forgot it until she was reminded by Christ. No, Mary chose the good thing to connect with me. I won't always be here. I mean, you always have work to do. I won't always be here. And that is a constant battle in my own life. I am someone who works often. I am someone who, where work comes easily to me. I'm not bothered by it. It doesn't offend me. I don't complain about it. I just take it in stride. I work a lot. And so naturally, for me, connections can be easily forgotten. And they were. Some years ago when I was uh, here at Meriden Hills, I remember very vividly a a person who came to me on a Sunday morning and they said, Pastor Russ, I just want to let you know I was bothered, I was offended by what happened last Sunday. This was years ago. And I said, really, what happened last Sunday? I I don't know what happened or anything that did. And they said, well, you ignored me. I said, hey, good morning, Pastor Russ, and you just walked right by me. You didn't say anything. And I said, oh, I, 
I don't know. I don't think I even saw you. As I said that, that like sounded worse <laughs> as it came out of my mouth. Like, you know, these are members of my church and I'm walking by them and don't see them. And, and I, as I'm saying this, I'm, I'm hearing the problem in my ears. I am seeing the problem. I apologize. And I said, I am really sorry. I said, sometimes I get busy and uh, don't notice people. And I, and I knew that wasn't, that was a reason. It was definitely not an excuse because there is no excuse for that. And since then, years ago, since then, I've made it an effort to not do that. It is so easy for me to just get so caught up in what I'm doing that I forget who I'm doing it for. I mean, if I'm not doing what I'm doing for you in this room, then why am I here? Well, I'm here for Christ. Yeah, but I'm here for Christ because of the people Christ loves, not because of me. I'm not here for me. I'm not here for the chairs or the building. I'm here for the people. And so when you lose connection with people, then you kind of lose your motivation. You lose your purpose. You lose your way. And a lot of Christians, I think, have lost their way because they've lost their connections. They've lost their motivation for who they are, what they're doing, what they're doing, and why they're doing it. A lot of marriages have lost their way for that same reason. The connection is gone. The marriage is lost. A lot of families have lost their way. The connection between the parents and the child is non-existent or heading in that direction. You lose your way when you lose your connections. And so we see this family that uh, Mary definitely doesn't have that problem. This young lady understands deeply the importance of connections. So with that in mind, can you imagine how hard it was for Mary to lose her brother Lazarus? This young woman who connections was her world. She prioritized them. And now her older brother Lazarus, which I'm sure she must have looked up to and cared deeply for and respected, especially in this culture where the older brother was kind of like the protector of the family. Oh, this would have hit Mary hard. Martha. You know, it's hard to say how Martha felt. We know she was sad. The Bible's going to tell us she's going to be crying. She's going to be upset. Uh, I don't know if Martha felt it as deeply as Mary. I don't know that we need to know that. I definitely can tell you it is going to hit Mary hard. All right, so Lazarus is sick. We're told the same Mary, which anointed the Lord with ointment, wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Therefore, his sisters sent unto him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom thou lovest is sick. All right, so these two... Women, they know that Christ can heal Lazarus. They've seen him do so many amazing things. It is not a lack of faith on their part. They're thinking, basically, Christ can save Lazarus. Let's get him over here so he will save Lazarus. I guarantee you that is their thought process. It was not a, I hope he can. We're not sure if he can. It's probably more of, will he than can he? Well, therefore, as sisters say, you know, he, he, the one who you love is sick. And you notice how they kind of use that verbiage that it's not Christ come here for us. It's come here for the one who needs to be healed. You love Lazarus, too. Can you be here for him? He's dying. Jesus heard this and says, this sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God that the Son of Man, Son of God might be glorified thereby. I've had more difficult conversations surrounding death than probably anything else as a pastor. More of them. 
I've had some difficult conversations about a lot of things. I think the most common difficult conversation surrounds death. Why did whoever, grandparent, um, child, those are the hardest ones when children teenagers, young adults, you know, a child's a child even when they're 50, right? If you're, if you're 75, your child's 50, they're still your child. So at any time that a child passes, those are really, really hard conversations to have. And I've had a lot of them. And not, um, in my opinion, not a lot of people really know how to process that. It's, it's difficult for them to process the idea that someone would die who, in their opinion, doesn't deserve to die, <laughs> I mean, you, could, you could say, well, we all deserve to die, right? Let me just tell you, you don't need to be saying that to someone who just lost someone, okay? That is not the scripture reference you should be turning to. I'm just saying we know that. Objectively, we know that truth. doesn't mean you need to give it to them in that moment. You could say, well, I mean, you know, we're all sinners. We all deserve to die. Who, you know, God promised we're all going to die. You, you can know all these things until the one you love dies. And then guess what? All those things you know don't matter anymore. The truths that I just mentioned that you have lived with and understand deeply, they don't comfort you when someone close to you is dying, especially someone close to you who you don't think is ready yet. There are people in our lives where it's almost a mercy. They're going through illnesses. They're elderly. We love them deeply, but we know they're saved. We know they're going to go to heaven. And it's not that we want them to die, but we recognize God's mercy and and in basically giving them a, a soft uh, sleep, you might say, and then knowing that he's embraced them. It's, there's still tears. There's still sadness. But it's not like a deep hurt bitterness going on, right, when we experience that. The real hardship is when we don't feel that way, when we don't feel that they were ready to go. Oh, man, a lot of doubt, a lot of questions for Christians. I, I can't imagine how the unsaved feel. Those who have no hope or those who hope is, isn't really founded in Scripture, it's founded in, in an emotion or founded in, in, as Pastor Ethan so, said so well Sunday, like, you know, the world's hope is kind of like a feeling, a desire, whereas our hope is based in promises. I can't imagine how the world feels about unnecessary um, before their time deaths when their hope is based in feelings. How much darkness they must be experiencing. Which is why the Apostle Paul tells the church, when we lose a loved one, we sorrow, but we don't sorrow as the world sorrows, because our hope is not the same hope of the world. But there is still sorrow there. I've had good Christians, strong Christians, all, all, of, their li- all of their adult life, teen life, even childhood, you know, strong faith, knew God existed, didn't doubt it. Oh, boy, they had some heavy, heavy doubts when someone they love died close to them. And so here is some piece of advice. When someone you know is struggling with these doubts, it is not your responsibility to eliminate their doubts. You're not God. Don't try to play God. It just offends them, and rightfully so. You don't need to be the preacher in those moments. Someone who lost a close friend or relative doesn't need a preacher. They need a companion. So you say, Pastor Russ, I don't know what to say in moments like that. Well, good news, you really don't have to say much. In fact, you'll probably get yourself in trouble when you do start talking. 
In moments like that, it is your presence. It is your love. Not just at the funeral, at the gravesite, not just then, but after then. Weeks after, months after, you are still in their life. You are still supporting, still showing compassion. That is what's going to help them through. Not your list of verses from the Bible that explains why people die. We all know why people die. No. Show them love. Show them real love through your presence. Well, Mary and Martha are about to experience that. Christ says, um, God is going to be glorified through this event. Now, that seems like a pretty harsh thing to say, and as I said already, that's not necessarily something you should be saying to people who've lost. Well, God is glorified. These things all just sound, honestly, cliche. They've been so overused. People can almost tell you what you're going to tell them as you start opening your mouth. It's just not necessary. But it doesn't mean it's not true, okay? It's just not necessary. So Christ is stating a truth. He's saying, look, what Lazarus is going through is going to be for the glory of me, the glory of God. I mean, Christ is God, right? Glory of God, uh, as well as that the Son of God also might be glorified. That's him. <laughs> so Lazarus is experiencing this for the glory of my Father and for the glory of myself. Now, for us in this room who are not currently experiencing the loss of a loved one at this moment, this is good information. And I'll tell you why it's good now. Because I would not tell this to you when you lost a loved one. This is the time to tell you now that God has a plan. God's got you. God has your family in his hands. And I know it's hard to see that as you're going through the valley of the shadow of death. Literally, it is very hard to see that. But it doesn't mean it's not true. God has a plan. And sometimes God's plan includes loss. Isn't that hard to believe? That God's plan would include loss. Like, why would that be? You know, God's plan should always include bounty, not loss. Well, that depends. I mean, what do you think is the end game of his plan? Is the end game of God's plan to make you rich beyond your wildest dreams? To bring you comfort? Uh, to, to only allow you to experience good things? If you think that is his plan, then yes, that's what should happen. But that is not God's plan. God's plan is God's glory. You say, well, Pastor Russ, that just sounds selfish. You know, if God is always about his glory, isn't that pride and selfishness and sin? No, because remember, what is the result of God's glory? When God is lifted up, all men are drawn to him. Look, God doesn't need your glory to be glorified. God doesn't need your praise to be praised. The rocks will cry out if we don't. When God is lifted up, when God is glorified, people are drawn to him. Pay attention to that especially when we get to the end of this chapter. Based off of what I just said, if when God is glorified, people are drawn to him, what would be your expectation once Lazarus is raised from this dead in the, in the well-known story that you already know how it all plays out? What would be your expectation? That people would be drawn to Christ. That people would get saved. And you know what? It happens. It can be a comfort not necessarily that someone says it, but that you see it. If you have a loved one who dies and you see God using their death for a greater good, 
It's not really good for someone to come and say, don't worry, God has a better plan. There's a greater good. That's just offensive. But it is comforting when you see it. And I've seen that. I've been at funerals of people who died, in my opinion, before their time. But at these funerals, I've seen people make choices. I've seen families changed. I've seen for the good people coming to Christ because of the passing of someone they were connected with. And God did use it for his glory. In verse 6, we're told, uh, when he had heard, therefore, that he was sick, he abode two days still in the same place where he was. Well, that just seems wrong. <laughs> so Christ is not in the area. The uh, messengers are sent to him saying, please come quickly. Christ says, well, whatever happens is going to happen for my glory, and then I'm just going to hang out here two more days. Now, why? Well, we know why. Logically, Christ stayed two more days so Lazarus would die. That was the reason he stayed. Because if Christ showed up and then just, you know, patted Lazarus' head, okay, Lazarus, going to be okay. You know, you're going to die, but I'll bring you back. It would just seem weird, right? And is, is Christ going to tell Lazarus he's going to bring him back? Is, is he playing with the emotions of Mary and Martha? It would just seem very cruel. So this does seem cruel that Christ has waited two days to let Lazarus die. It would have been more cruel if he showed up and ignored Lazarus or showed up and stood by his side while he died only to raise him up later. Sometimes what seems as cruelty from God is part of God's foreknowledge, part of God's omniscience. God knows more than we do. God has a bigger, better plan than we do. Here's what I, when people truly want to know, and it's not just like, why did my, my father die? Why did my grandmother die? They don't really want to know that. They just want to be comforted and loved, and that's usually what I try to do. But when someone really wants to know the truth, and maybe the person they love that died has, you know, has, has been passed for some time, they're kind of ready to, they want to take the next step, but some answers need to be received first, and they're ready for those answers. Well, then that's when I'm going to be giving them this kind of information here. Not at the funeral, not the week after the funeral. But one thing that I do tell people who really want to know is I say, look, our view of death is that it's the end of a, of a life that was cut short or long enough. Either way, it's the end. I said, you've got to understand, God's point of view is eternal. God doesn't see death as the end. In fact, in the Bible, he often calls it sleep. Referring to the Old Testament saints, New Testament saints, doesn't even call it death every time. He says it's sleep. The Apostle Paul says, and they sleep. Referring to the saints. So God's view is different than ours. And our definition of what is cruel is due to how we see death. If we could just get a taste for how God sees it. Death, yes, a result of the curse. It uh, is an unfortunate uh, reality we must all live with, death, because of the choices made on our behalf by Adam and Eve. I get that. But even having said that, Christ offered something far beyond this life. He offered eternal life. And for those who've accepted it, death is the door for which you must enter to get to eternal life until you're, unless we're one of the lucky uh, generations that gets to be raptured. Aside from that, we must walk through that door to get to the better. I've worked with kids a long time, and I've had a lot of opportunity, my children, other people's children, to see this played out practically in the life of a child where they are afraid to do something they've never experienced before. 
whether it's a roller coaster ride or an activity, uh, a sport possibly, something that they're unfamiliar with that causes them fear. And I see the fear in them. If I can just get them to the point where they're willing to take that step, not always, but often that child enjoys it so much, the fear is gone, and they want to keep doing it. Look, if you had a taste of heaven, you wouldn't be afraid of death. You'd be begging for it. And death is not God's, (laughs) uh, an illustration of God's hatred upon man's kind. (laughs) Death is a reality because of the choices we made, but but death can be viewed as a gift of God because of what comes after. I'm not saying that God is good because he allows children to die or God is good because he allows teenagers or young adults to die. No, God is good because, because God offers life after death. God is good because he came and died so we didn't have to stay dead. Death is just a reality of the human condition. God is good because of what he offers as an alternative to a never-ending death. But we don't see it that way, do we? Why? Because we have a mortal view of the here and now, and we think this is the best it's going to get, and this is all that we need, oh, man, I sure hope this life is not all I get. That would, I'd be extremely depressed, extremely, if I thought this was life is all I'm going to get. I am, I am looking forward to the time where God takes me home. I will enjoy the connections I have now. I will enjoy the opportunity to serve God now. I will take advantage of that opportunity, but I am by no means... Um, regretting the fact that someday I get to go to heaven. I'm excited about that. And I'm excited about that for my wife and for my kids. I hope that God gives me a long time with the people that I love. But here's what I do know. And I'm not telling you that I'll think this on the day I lose a loved one. I'm not telling you I'll think this on the week after. But it will come back to me because I believe it strongly. Losing someone you love isn't really losing them if they're going to heaven. It's just a short time. So these are the answers that are hard to remember when someone passes, and you, don't, you should not remind them at the moment someone passes. But these, God does have answers when they're ready to hear them. Death is not permanent. God conquered death. And so what seemed cruel here, Christ waiting two days, is actually part of God's bigger plan, and God sees death in a different way than we see death, and it would have been more cruel if Christ had arrived. His verse, in verse 8, he says, uh, well, he says, let's go to Judea, uh, verse 7. His disciples said, Master, the Jews of late sought to stone thee. Uh, why, you know, why would you want to go back there? <laughs> There's only death waiting for you there. And then in verse 9, he says, are there not 12 hours in the day? If any man walk in the day, he stumbleth not, because he seeth the light of the world. But a man walk in the night, he stumbleth. These things said he, and after that he said unto them, Our friend Lazarus sleepeth, but I must go, that I may awake him out of sleep. Lazarus is now dead. And here, as I said, Christ sees death differently and calls it sleep. Christ said, Lazarus is dead. It's time to wake him up. What an exciting phrase. Those loved ones that have passed before us, they've already slept. And you know what? If they're saved, they've already been woken up. Christ already woke them up. It's been a done deal. They've been awake for some time and enjoying a life way better than this world could offer them. Enjoying deeper, uh, better, loving connections uh, a lot more than they could have here. 
Christ was heading to Judea to wake up Lazarus, unfortunately for Lazarus, back to this cursed life. But when a Christian dies, God wakes them up to paradise. Remember that. His disciples said, Lord, if he sleep, he shall do well. Of course, in verse 13, Christ is speaking of his death. Then in verse 14, Christ just outrightly says, look, guys, Lazarus is dead, okay? I'm, when I say sleep, I'm referring to how you should be viewing it, but he's dead. I am glad for your sakes that I was not there to the intent you may believe. Nevertheless, let us go unto him. I'm glad that I wasn't there to keep him from death because I'm going to show you just how powerful I am. Now, what is the point of this? Why have Lazarus go through all of this emotional turmoil of, of breathing his last breath and consciousness slipping from him as his sisters hold on to his hands, crying, Lazarus, don't leave us, Lazarus, don't leave us, and Lazarus fighting to, because he wants to take care of his sisters, he wants to remain and protect his family, all the trauma he must have experienced, and then he's dead, and then the trauma passed on to his family because he's dead, so all the trauma is just now theirs. Why? All of this trauma that this family must experience for the glory of God. Well, we're going to see people getting saved. That's one reason. But also, you know what I told my students today in math class? We were talking about, actually, it was geography class. Excuse me. We were talking about faith. We were talking about Confucianism and how a lot of religions include faith, including Confucianism includes faith. I said, but their faith is kind of faith uh, based in, I believe something, and I have faith that it's going to happen. I, you know, kind of believe your thing through, right? Uh, faith it through. Faith it until you make it, whatever. And so... I said, that's not the Christian faith. I actually said, hey, you guys define for me faith. And they started raising their hand, and these students, these are in high school, they're giving me their definitions of what they think faith is. And I said, you know, actually, your definition of faith is a whole lot closer to the world's. It's a, well, believe it, and it'll happen. I said, you don't see that in the Bible. Christian faith is based off of what you know. God reveals himself in creation. Therefore, we have knowledge there is a creator, and then we have faith. We step out blindly that this creator uh, is God because of what we see in creation. Then, fortunately, God didn't end there. He gave us the Bible and gave us a whole lot of details and information about who this God is and how much he loves us and the character of God, Jehovah. And now we've seen with our eyes an explanation that makes sense, that is logical. Now we must step out in faith and accept what we cannot see. Because we, we can see the works of God's hands. We can see the works of his hands in creation and throughout history and in our own lives and in other lives. We can see those works, but we can't see God. Nor can we see the future that those works would in some way result in our salvation. That takes faith. But I love how God gives us truth, doesn't just say, believe it because I said it, now trust it. He says, I'm going to show you that I can be trusted. So I called one of the students up and I said, all right, one of the young men, I said, uh, go ahead and keep your eyes open. You can even look back. I said, let's do a trust fall. Keep your hands out. Fall back. And I, you know, he like fell back a little bit. I just caught him like briefly. I said, all right, let's do it again. We did it like four times. Eyes open every time. I said, all right, so I've proved, and every time I kind of caught him a little lower. And I said, I've shown the class that I am strong enough to, to keep this young man from falling to the ground. 
I said, you guys know me well enough that I'm not the kind of teacher that's going to, like, you know, wink, wink, and let the poor kid fall to the ground. I'm not that kind of teacher. You know me. I've shown that I'm strong enough to catch him. This young man has been caught four times. I said, now, go ahead and close your eyes, and let's see if you'll trust me to catch you. I promise I won't let you fall. And so he does it, and then he stumbles. He, he tries to catch himself. I said, oh, man, I thought, you know, I thought you trusted me. He said, oh, I know. It's just kind of a reaction. My body was reacting. I said, okay, do it again, and this time force your body to accept what you know about me and have faith that I will catch you. I caught him pretty low, too. Kept his feet planted, fell back, and I said, okay, you had faith. You believed that I wasn't going to drop you. You knew that I could. So based off of what you knew, you had faith. You fell back. I caught you. I said, do any other students in this class think they can trust me? And you know, they, they raised their hand. I called another young man up, and I said, I'm just going to have you right away. Close your eyes, fall back. Close his eyes, fell back. I caught him. He didn't stumble. He didn't step back. And I said, guys, this is faith. Your faith is based on the facts that I gave you. You know me. You know my character. I'm not going to let you fall. I've proven that I'm strong enough to hold you. I'm not some stranger. So therefore, you could close your eyes, unseen, trust you'll be caught. I said, if you go out to a stranger on the street and said, hey, trust fall, catch me, you know, that's not faith. You're hoping, first of all, the person's not going to be creeped out enough to just let you fall. You're hoping the person's strong enough to catch you. You're hoping the person has enough character to want to catch you. You're, you're trusting in a lot of things you don't know. I said, that's not Christian faith. That's blind faith. That's stupid faith. Christian faith is God revealing enough so you can, you can see who he is and then stepping out in faith from there. So here we have Christ dealing with people, and he's basically saying, you got to have faith in me, but I'm going to give you something to have faith in. Because what has Christ been saying? He said, I'm going to die, and I'm going to come back. And then we're going to find that he does come back and he's going to claim that his, he has power over death and that his accomplishment in this is, is going to uh, break the death's hold on us. But even before that, he's telling them, I'm going to die. And he's going to leave his apostles, his disciples, his followers with facts to get them to faith. Unfortunately, it doesn't accomplish that. We find that as he dies, his followers are all distraught. And they don't have faith that he's going to raise from the dead. Why wouldn't they? They've seen enough facts because they forgot what they knew. And when they forgot what they saw and forgot what they knew, their faith was lost. I told the students that today as well. I said, guys, when someone steals from you what you know, your faith goes with it. When they destroy what you know about the Bible, you're going to lose faith because your faith is based on your knowledge of the Bible. So that's what they're looking to do. They're looking to destroy your knowledge of God's word. That's their end game. God has given them so many opportunities in his life, miracle after miracle after miracle. He's, he's risen other people from the dead, right? Lazarus is not the first one. It was a widow's son that was risen from the dead. So people have been already been raised from the dead. Christ has already shown them his power over death. But he's going to die himself soon, and it looks like he's going to do it another time, close to when the faith is needed. I'm at a point now in my life at 39 where I get a little scared when God reveals himself strongly to me in some way. Some amazing event happens. I'm like, oh, no, here we go. Um, it's not, and I am a pessimist by nature. I think I've said that. By nature, I'm a pessimist. You wouldn't know that, would you? Because I'm always so positive. I am a pessimist. I generally do look at and expect bad things to happen. Like, I expect the worst. Hope for the best plan for the worst because I expect the worst. So I'm not usually very surprised when bad things happen. I'm like, yeah, I kind of knew that would happen. I'm more surprised when they don't. 
But I, this is what I have learned, that when God brings great things into my life, not always, but often, at least in my opinion, it seems he's kind of giving me some facts because he's going to expect some faith. That's always scary to me. Because at 39, you know, I've been in the ministry so long, the times of faith God requires from me aren't like, you know, he's going to give me a cold and I have to get through it for two days. No, like the things he expects from me in faith in my life are pretty big deals. They're not always easy and they're very rarely fun. And so I say in jest, you know, like, oh, no, here we go. I, I, I understand what is going on. I see it. I know that faith is a part of the Christian living. I know that me living out my faith brings God glory and helps other people see how that looks. I, I get it all, and I've come to a point where I just accept it. And so in jest, I say, oh, here we go, but only partly in jest, because part of me is like, oh, here we go. But I kind of, I know it. I see it for what it is. God is giving me something to see now, because very soon I will have to step out in faith. And that is what he's doing here. He is giving the apostles something to see. I'm going to raise Lazarus from the dead because I'm expecting a big step of faith from you when I die. Unfortunately, they forgot what they saw in Lazarus and therefore lose their faith. But I don't see them continuing that mistake into the early church. They learn from their mistake. And throughout the book of Acts and the epistles and beyond, according to church history, it doesn't seem that the apostles ever made that misstep again. They realized, man, we lost our way. We lost our faith because we forgot the kind of God we served. We forgot he's the raiser of the dead. How, that was stupid. How could we forget that? But after realizing that, after making that connection, it doesn't seem they ever forget it again. And therefore, their faith never wavers again. So Thomas, called Didymus, said unto his fellow disciples, let us go that we may die with him. Then when Jesus came, he found that he had already laid in the grave four days already. By the way, let us go that we may die with him. You know, what are they talking about? I think Thomas is talking about Christ again. They're concerned if he goes to Jerusalem, what's going to happen to Christ? That's what I think. I don't think Thomas is saying, let us go so we can die with Lazarus. They're basically saying, whatever his reasons are for going to, to, to Judea, it's a dangerous place. It, it, they want to kill him there. But if Christ wants to go... Guys, let's go, and we'll be there with him and stand by his side when he dies. Oh, what bold words, right? How quickly they are eaten. So Jesus arrives. Lazarus has been dead four days already. Bethany was nigh to Jerusalem, 15 furloins. Many of the Jews came to Mother uh, Martha and Mary, that's verse 19, to comfort them. Verse 20, Martha, as soon as she heard Jesus was coming, went and met him, but Mary sat still in the house. Then said Martha unto Jesus, Lord, if thou hast been here, my brother had not died. But I know that even now, whatsoever thou wilt ask of God, God will give it thee. What is she asking? Raise him from the dead. She's asking that. This woman... Uh, in spite of all her faults, in spite of her misplaced priorities and her, her, her uh, forgetfulness about how important connections are, this woman had faith. She basically calls Jesus out and says, where were you, Christ? I mean, this is, I've known women like this. She calls them out, calls out God, you know, the audacity. But then she, she says, but, but God, I do know, I do know, Jesus, you can fix all of this. I know you can bring them back. Now, in verse 23, he says, Thy brother shall rise again. 
Martha saith unto him, I know that he shall rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus says, 25, I am the resurrection and life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. Whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Believest thou this? He says, Yea, Lord, I believe thou art the Christ, the Son of God. And when she said so, she went her way, called Mary, her sister, secretly saying, The Master has come and calleth for thee. I don't see Christ calling for Mary. Maybe we're missing something. Maybe Christ did and chose not to record it through inspiration. I don't think that's what's happening. Martha believed Jesus could raise Lazarus from the dead. Martha asked Jesus to raise Lazarus from the dead. Jesus said he will raise again. Martha assumed Jesus was talking about at the resurrection. Martha walks away thinking Jesus isn't going to raise Lazarus from the dead. Why? He doesn't love me as much as he loves, oh, Mary. I just got to get the right person to ask Jesus. If I get married to ask Jesus, then we're going to see something happen. Now, you and I, you know, we're on the outside looking in. We know that's not what's going on here. Martha's, mis- she's misreading the whole thing. But she's trying to manipulate Christ. Imagine that. Manipulating God. Who would do such a thing, right? We would never say, God, if you do this, I will. We would never do that, right? We would never attempt to manipulate God and ask God to act and promise we will do some reaction in return. I've never done that. Yes, I have. In fact, that was the beginning of my Christian journey when I was foolish enough and young enough to believe that God could be manipulated. You know what's interesting? God actually acted on it. Not because I had manipulated him, but because God was gracious enough to work with a foolish young man who didn't truly understand God. That's why. And I do see people doing that, and it, it, it doesn't amaze me because, again, God did it for me. What amazes me is how gracious God is, that God will work with people knowing full well their heart, knowing full well they're trying to manipulate him. God will work with them anyways because at least there's some work being done. But not always. There's times where people beg and plead and say, I will do all these things, and God does chooses not to act, chooses to walk away from the manipulation. God knows better than me. God knows the future. I do not. So she's trying to manipulate God, in my opinion, and says, hey, Mary, the master wants to see you. She just needs to connect Mary with Jesus because she remembers, oh, you know, Mary loves Jesus so much, and Jesus loves Mary so much. This is the answer. So Mary hears it, runs quickly. Verse 30, Jesus was not yet come to town, uh, where, but was in that place where Martha met him, which means he hadn't moved yet. He hadn't left yet. The Jews, which were in her house, comforted her. They saw Mary rose up hastily, went and followed, saying, she go to the grave to weep there. So there's a crowd of Jews following Mary now. Obviously, again, God sees it all, right? Christ is waiting for the moment, the right moment, at the right time. Why would Christ want the Jews who had been at the death of Lazarus to be at the resurrection of Lazarus? Because what are people going to claim? Oh, you know what? They buried him too early. Poor guy. He, was, he wasn't really dead. He's been in that tomb for four days, starving and suffocating. That's what people would have, could have said. Even the disciples. They weren't in town. Jesus can say, let's go to the grave and let Lazarus out. And they'd be saying, wow, who stuck poor guy in there? Like, aren't there doctors in the area to know when the guy's truly dead? What is wrong with you people? 
Jesus, in his wisdom, said, let's wait till those who saw Lazarus die knew Lazarus dead. Let's bring them over here, and we'll let Mary... I mean, Jesus knows what Martha's doing. He's waiting for Mary to show up, knowing that who Mary brings is who he wants there at the tomb to witness the resurrection. So he sees her weeping. And when he sees her weeping, he groaned in his spirit and was troubled. Did you catch that? Troubled. What does that mean? Bothered. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Why would Christ be bothered? He, Lazarus is literally going to raise from the dead in less than an hour. What bothers Christ about the fact that his friend is dead but will be alive again in an hour? Why is Christ bothered by that? He's not. He's only troubled when he sees those he loves hurting. That's what bothers him. It's not a sin to be bothered. It's not a sin to feel troubled, to feel hurt for those who are hurting and troubled. It is a reflection of compassion and love. Did you know that God can feel bothered? It's not a sin. Christ is doing it. Christ is God. God can feel bothered when he sees us in pain. Well, if God sees me in pain, then why doesn't God just fix the problem? Right? God fixes the problem. I'm not bothered anymore. He's not bothered anymore. Fix the problem. But Christ says, well, there's a bigger problem than your pain. The bigger problem is the eternal souls of people. And me fixing your problem would result in an eternal soul going to hell. Me allowing your problem to maintain, unbeknownst to you, domino effect indirectly or directly, someone's going to get saved. And a soul will go to eternity that would not otherwise. And for that reason, I'm going to let you be bothered. For that reason, you're going to be hurt. But I will hurt with you. You won't hurt alone. I love that. God doesn't let you hurt alone. Mary was hurt. God was hurt. Mary was bothered. God was bothered. The Bible tells us in Matthew chapter 5, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Not by an aloof God who will pat you on the head, but by a loving Father who is hurt when his children are hurt, and he will embrace them, and in their pain, share with them. Jesus, verse 35, weeps. This is not some fake, shallow sorrow. This is deep pain that Christ is feeling. Jesus wept. Not because of Lazarus, He weeps because he sees the pain those he loves. The Jews say, behold how he loved him. That doesn't mean that's why Jesus wept. That's an assumption the Jews are making. Jesus knew Lazarus was going to die four days ago. He would have wept then if it was about Lazarus. 
Jesus knew Lazarus died as he's traveling back. He would have wept then. He knew. Jesus weeps because his, the people he loves are hurting. They made the wrong assumption here. Verse 38. Jesus, therefore, again, groaning in himself, coming to the grave. In verse 39, he says, take away the stone. Uh, Martha, of course, says, this, by this time he stinketh. That's what my Bible says. You've got to love that word, he stinketh. I'm sure yours might say something different, but that's the one I got. He's been dead four days. It's pretty smelly, you sure? And that's how I know Martha doesn't believe Jesus is going to raise him from the dead because she would have been the first one to move the grave stone away if she believed Christ was there to raise him. She must have thought Jesus was there to say his goodbyes, to in some way depart with uh, some form of recognition or honor given to Lazarus. And Martha's saying, I mean, Christ, I, you know your friends. I, I get you want to say your goodbyes, but do we, is that necessary? It's going to be really smelly. You sure you want to do this? Verse 40, said I not unto thee that if thou wouldst believe, thou shouldest see the glory of God. They take away the stone. Jesus lifts up his eyes, verse 42. He says, um, I knew that thou hearest me always, but because of the people which stand by, I said it, that they may believe thou hast sent me. And then verse 43, Lazarus come forth. Christ basically says, God, I'm praying out loud, not because you need to hear me pray out loud, but for the sake of those listening, I'm praying out loud. <laughs> and he goes on with his prayer. I, I don't know that this is the only part of his prayer we're given I, what I think is probably a part of the prayer, in my opinion. But regardless, he's speaking to God the Father for the sake of those nearby so they can recognize this miracle comes from God through him as a son of God. He says, Lazarus comes forth. Of course, you know the story, verse 44. Lazarus comes out. He's still bound head to foot by grave clothes. If you imagine how that would look, uh, not as maybe graceful as you think. He didn't tear them off as he came. He's bound. The poor guy's like doing the shuffle, you know, the grave clothes shuffle as he's coming out. Uh, so that would have been a little odd sight. Uh, then many of the Jews came to Mary and had seen these things which Jesus did. And what? I told you, pay attention. Verse 45, what did they do? Believed on him. There it is. And that, that right there is the greatest truth you must always hold on to when trials, tribulation, and yes, even death is experienced in your life. Directly or indirectly, there it is. When God is glorified, when he's lifted up, people are drawn to him. Now, it doesn't always mean someone is saved. It could be someone who is already saved comes back. But the domino effect, right? Someone who comes back to God begins to serve God in love sincerely and in their service 10 years down the road souls are saved. But souls are saved because this person is serving, and this person is serving because God being glorified in the loss of a loved one. Unfortunately, it doesn't always work that way. I've known the opposite to be true. I've known when a loved one is lost, people run from God, turn their back on God. What happened was a mishandling of truth by the preacher, by the spiritual leader, by the individual themselves. It's not God's fault. God's intention is never to turn people away. God gave an opportunity to draw people to him through tragedy. People chose to run from him in tragedy. And I think largely due, as I said, to having a mortal perspective of life rather than an eternal one. 
not having this truth available to them before death, and sometimes only hearing it during the death of a loved one, and it does the opposite effect. But when you have this truth kind of in your tool belt before you get to that moment, no one needs to say it. In the back of your mind, it's enough to get you through. You just need to be comforted in time, and then you can come back to those truths again later. Now, we're told in verse 47, then gathered the chief priests, Pharisees, a council, and said, what do we? For this man doeth many miracles. If we let him thus alone, all men will believe on him. Oh, man, imagine that, right? What a shame that all men would believe on Christ. We're going to end there. There's a conversation that is had and then uh, kind of getting into the end of Christ's earthly ministry, but for sake of time, we'll, we'll cut it off there. Folks, life is full of tragedy. I'm not trying to belittle tragedy. I'm trying to help you understand mortal life, this life is full of tragedy. Stop looking at life through only the 80, 120 tops years you're going to get in this life. Stop looking at it that way and start recognizing there's a much bigger deal in play, eternal life. And yes, sometimes we must experience tragedies, what we might even call unnecessary tragedies, for the sake of the greater good. Let me explain the greater good. It's pretty easy. God's glory. That is the greater good. Always and every time. Whether that tragedy is death, illness, loss, in any way, for God's glory, at least there's purpose through it. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you for...